Well, good morning and welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. We're so glad to have you in worship with us and welcome to our celebration of Advent. It begins this week and runs for a number of weeks and our uh, series is called The Places of Christmas. All of those places that God chooses to enter into. The places both grandiose as well as as tiny and small and seemingly insignificant. We're going to look at one of those places this morning that is seemingly insignificant, that is small in, in appearance, but yet God uses it for great purposes. Let's read our passage in Micah chapter 5. You can follow along in your bulletin. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are sheep in need of a shepherd. We are people who have made a mess of our lives. We are people who are sick and frail. We are people who are without a job. We are people with great and far-reaching spiritual questions and doubts and concerns about the way the world is. And how can we reconcile what we see in the world with a good and loving and eternally powerful God? Lord, we are sinful people and we need a savior. We need a shepherd. We need you to step into our lives in a real way, in a way that we can sense and feel and be aware of in the midst of our brokenness. As we see in this passage that your peace can come even in the midst of great terror in hard times. Father, I pray that as you ameliorate those things, that you take away the hardness and the sickness and the sadness in our lives, that while we are still in the midst of it, you would grant us a sense of your deep and abiding love, a sense of your presence and a sense of your peace. During this Advent season, let us all come to terms with what you have offered us in the gospel, in the baby, in the manger. And in the hope that comes in his gospel, let us realize that all the more surely this this time. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember uh, the movie Back to the Future? I remember wondering when it came out, how do you go back to the future? What are they talking about? And sure enough, when our kids saw the film just a few years ago, they asked the same thing. Dad, how do you go back to the future? It doesn't make any sense. If you've seen the film, you remember Marty McFly, and he carried around this photo, and he was in 1955. The photo was from 1985, and throughout the movie, as events unfolded, 
certain people, his siblings in that picture began to disappear. And his actions in the 1950s somehow affected the events in the future or the present, depending on your perspective. And then his actions changed the photo that was a photo of the present in the past, depending on how you looked at it. That's similar to what we're dealing with here in Micah. From our perspective, the events that he's referring to are all over time. It's a scattershot prophecy. It points way back to the Ancient of Days and also way into the future where the peace will finally come. Through this passage, we are going back to the future. He's referring directly to events that are more or less in his readers and his hearers' presence. And also in, to events that are going to happen in, in more or less just a few hundred years. And then what proved to be many centuries into the future when Messiah actually came, as much as 700 years later. And then he asked us to look even farther in the future, into our future as modern day hearers, when one day that peace would come to all the ends of the earth, that Messiah would come again, that this Messiah's greatness and security and peace would extend to the very ends of the earth. We're, written, we're listening in to a prophecy that was written and given almost 3,000 years ago. But he's telling us not only about the king who has come, but the king who will come. The once and future king, to use a T.H. White reference twice in less than a month. Or maybe better to frame our passage, the past and the present and the future king. Let's look at those in order. He talks about, first of all, the king who is from old, from ancient of days, the king from the past. So many of our great stories have to do with the return of a good king. Remember Robin Hood. King Richard is still king, but he's fighting in the Crusades and everything is going to pot in England. And one day, though, that King Richard will come back. That's the hope that he will come And that everyone will experience his good and peaceful and nurturing rule. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings stories. Aragorn, the king, is hiding out in plain sight as a ranger. And Sauron is mounting his forces of evil. And it looks like everything is going to pot. But the third installment is the return of the king. That at some day, the return of the king will happen and good will ensue. And then King Arthur, as I mentioned before, we're captivated by this idea that the world's corruption and sadness and brokenness will one day be set to right. That one day a gallant, wise ruler will put things to right just when things look worse, that they'll come in and squash all that is evil and bring peace. Now here in Micah, we're dealing with a story that's more ancient than any of these other stories. He tells us about a king who will come, the Messiah, who will do just that. That there is reason to hope that the Messiah, the return of the king, will happen and he will bring peace. He will bring security to all who trust in him. Now, why do we like these stories? Why are they captivating? It's because, of course, they're dramatic and they're even romantic at times. We like these ideas of a superhero a super leader to come and clean up all this mess, all of the brokenness that we see. Isn't that what all of the hype is in the electoral process every four years? 
or what all the hubbub is about certain movements that we get behind. We say, if this movement could be enshrined, if these ideas could be put in force, if this person could be elected, then things would go better. Then there would be peace. Then there would be prosperity. But what are we often hoping for as we hope in that type of leader or that type of solution? We're wanting them to enshrine our ideas, our perspectives, to give us dominance, to give our perspective rule in the world. We want our side to win. But in Micah's perspective, who is in need of a king? Who's in need of a shepherd? Who needs to be toppled? It's those who think that God is on their side. It's those who think, I know the way things should be. It's those who say, I am just fine on my own. I can rule my own kingdom. When the king comes, he'll establish their values. He'll establish their kingdom, not Jesus's. Now, where do we see this in the passage? You may be asking, well, I didn't notice that as you read Well, remember that Micah is writing to a specific audience in a specific situation in history, and he has both narrow and wider concerns. He is calling Israel to account for both a specific set of sins and then also an underlying set of sins. The narrower, and some of you may not like this, some of you, some others may say right on, but what is he addressing here? It's the shocking contrast that is developed in Israel between the rich and the poor and the exploitation of the middle class. My, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It's almost like a track from Occupy Bethlehem. Those are his narrower concerns. Among God's people, people are being exploited. That there's a shocking contrast between rich and poor. People have been talking about this for many centuries. But the wider concern that Micah has his sights on and the common challenge that all of the prophets bring to Israel is that God's people had abandoned him, that they had sought to live life on their own. And though God was offering to be a faithful guardian, that Israel chose to disregard his care and say, I am fine on my own. I will live life the way I see fit. I will run and rule my own kingdom. In other words, the problem The more fundamental sin was that they were worshiping themselves and their own capacity, their own perspectives, their own needs more than they were worshiping Yahweh. And after repeated warnings, prophet after prophet saying the same thing, return to God, come back to your faithful king, come back to the Lord. He says, marshal your troops now for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. In other words, there will be a shameful defeat that Israel itself, God's people, will be allowed to suffer defeat at the hands of its enemies because their sin has grown so great and so entrenched. They will be devastated and overrun and their independence will be toppled. What God is essentially saying, almost taunting them, marshal your troops, but it will be no matter. It will not guard you from the affliction, the discipline that is coming because the Assyrians are coming from my hand, from my doing. I want, you want to be your own king? You want to be in control? God is saying, okay, here's your chance. 
and let's see how it goes. The Assyrians would rout the northern kingdom, which we call Israel in the Old Testament. And then the Babylonians would come along and wipe them out. And they would then conquer the southern kingdom, the last holdout, what we would call Judah in the Bible in 586. And for nearly 600 years, there is no ruler, no shepherd, no clear authority in Israel that would rule and dominate them with goodness and care. But God doesn't fully abandon them. He has actually a plan to redeem them that comes from the ancient of days, that comes from the past. There is a king who has been waiting. There's not only verse 1, marshal your troops, but it will be no matter because the Assyrians are going to come in and dominate you. There is also verse 2, there is one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Then they shall dwell secure. They shall have peace. You see, friends, this Messiah, this king, doesn't just show up in history by accident. He doesn't just pop onto the stage like a magician. He's always been. When Scripture talks about the Ancient of Days, that is the, that is the God who has always existed, who is eternal, who is before all things. In one way, he will be born. He will enter into history at a specific point in Bethlehem. But in another way, he's the king who's always been. He's the one who's taking the throne because it's always been his. He is the king, the past king, the ancient king who will come to set things right. But there's also a present reality. Not only does the king come from the past and exist in the past, when he comes on the stage, there is a present aspect, a present dimension. Just as Bethlehem had once produced the greatest national king of Israel in David, so another king would come from this very improbable place. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah is like a, a last name. It's signifying which Bethlehem that the king is going to come from. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from old. From you, Bethlehem, insignificant little Bethlehem, from you will come a ruler, the ruler. He is a shepherd, a shepherd king. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He is a shepherd who brings peace, who brings eternal peace into present reality, who incarnates eternal truth, eternal peace into your and my world. I read an article this week called Advent for the Introverted. And though I have a public role, most people think I'm extroverted, I'm not. So I need help during the holidays because there's a lot of parties, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of celebrating, and some of us introverts get a little tired out by that. And so this article was written for those that have that type of temperament. How do we not only survive, but how do we thrive in the Advent season? He says, and this is a little long of a quote, but I think he gets at something very essential as we think about celebrating Advent. He says, I may be way off on this, but I suspect the decorations, the music, the saturated social calendars, the capitalistic flurry, and the caloric overload are attempts at finding something true, something significant, hopes for discovering community and transcendence. The problem, I think, 
is that our culture doesn't know how to truly celebrate. Overconsumption and overstimulation are the only ways we know how to mark a special occasion. Even though most of us implicitly know it doesn't work and that we're going to wake up with a hangover, it's all we know how to do. When there's a significant event, we commemorate it by scurrying around, spending absurd amounts of money, gathering a crowd, and turning up the volume. Our holiday celebrations, therefore, seem destined to only get bigger and bigger because we built up such a tolerance. For Christians, Christmas Eves are often a confusing recipe of ingredients like the onslaught of relatives, massive food preparation, stressful and boisterous dinners, hurrying everyone into the car, attending a Christmas Eve service in which we sing lyrics like, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Then we rush home, hustle the kids in the bed so we can finish wrapping gifts and stuffing stockings because they'll be up in five hours. Sleep in heavenly peace indeed. Did you get what he's saying? For all of our complaining about the clutter and the stress of the Christmas season, that it's been co-opted by this or that, But the truth is, we don't know how to do it any other way than in a frenzy. Christmas is just normal life on steroids. Our external lives, friends, are just simply echoes of what is going on in our internal lives. Our hurried agendas, our pressure-cooked calendars, our impulsive buying are simply the revealing of a lack of internal silence, of internal peace. They're revealing a lack of an ability to truly stop, to truly rest, if only for a moment. In contrast to the swarming disorder of the way that you and I live our lives day to day, and especially in the holidays, and the inner chaos of our own thought life, and the confusion that you and I often feel, the Gospels tell us this simple and quiet story in the very simplest of prose about a baby who fulfills Micah's prophecy 700 years before. A baby born in a very ordinary town in a very insignificant region to a very indistinguished people. Yet this baby is the ruler. He is the king. He is the hopes of all humanity. He is the Messiah who will bring in true peace, not just a stopping, not just a resting, not just a break or a vacation, but internal, lasting peace that puts an end to the internal disorder and chaos of our souls. In this very smelly stable in the middle of nowhere, it becomes the center of everything because the king has come. From you, O Bethlehem, shall come forth from me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The birth of Jesus incarnates for us the ancient promise that we are not left alone in this universe, that we are not left alone to simply live out our days, to try and find diversion or temporary celebration to kind of dull the sense, the foreboding sense that we don't know what's going on in the world. 
that at the center of the universe, this baby is born to tell us at the center of the universe, there's an immeasurable love. There's a merciful God who will grant stillness to our souls, who will bring true peace in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a world that is disordered and broken and oftentimes feeling like it's spinning out of controls in the large way and also in this more individual, personalized way, that even in the midst of that chaos, that spiral, that there can be peace. In Jesus, there's a real silent night, genuine rest. There's an ability, if we understand what is happening in that manger, if we're understanding what it is telling us about what rests at the very center of the universe, there is an ability to sleep in heavenly peace. Jesus is the king from the past who brings his eternal living, his eternal existence into our present. He brings peace into the presence and he inaugurates his rule in the present life. Advent then is not simply a reflection on events past, the birth of a real peace in Bethlehem, but it's also a season of quiet, intentional hope, a rekindling of expectation towards the second advent of Jesus. You see, what happened is Jesus inaugurated his kingdom when he was born, but the full flourishing, the final extensive rule, peace to the ends of the earth has not yet been fully consummated. Micah, throughout his book, writes of this final proliferation of peace that will make what happened in the manger seem beautiful, yet small by contrast, that peace will come in fullness, in lasting fullness. He envisions throughout his book swords being beaten into plowshares, nations at peace with one another, God abiding by the promises of old and bringing his mercy in full. He writes this astounding ending. It's just a seven-chapter book, so I would encourage you, read it through. You'll be amazed. But at the very end, the last three verses, who is a God like you? Remember, these are people who have just been disciplined and chastised and warned that they are going to be overrun by their most bitter enemies, and yet they end with worship. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You did not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities in the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Do you see Micah? has the perspective that something even greater is coming, that there is a reason to hope that even in spite of the Assyrian armies encamped at their borders about to take them over, there's reason to hope. Friends, oftentimes the peace that Jesus brings doesn't come in the distilling of your circumstances into more uh, happy circumstances. It doesn't come necessarily in immediately changing the events and the circumstances, the environment of your life. Sometimes it does, and we pray for that, and we long for that. But when you understand what rests at the center of the universe, immeasurable love, that there is hope for the future, hope for your future, then there can be rest in the midst of chaos, in the midst of very challenging circumstances. 
In Advent, not only do we celebrate what has happened in the past, but we await intentionally the future. The king who will come and complete his reclamation project of the entire world and will finalize his promises of redemption. I will throw your iniquities into the sea. I will trod them. I will tread them. How do you say that? Underfoot. They will be done away with forever. Our celebration during this time of the year is necessarily incomplete because we are celebrating, yes, the advent, the waiting that has now, ta- that has now been consummated in Jesus' coming, but yet there is a f- continual waiting. Last year, Daryl Smith was arrested in Washington for kidnapping and robbery. He was on his way to go appear before a judge for some type of hearing, and he claimed to be sick. And so the van turned around and took him back to jail. And on the way, though he was handcuffed, he somehow overpowered his uh, captor, overpowered the officer that was guarding him, and, and left the van and went and found an old grain truck that happened to have the keys in the ignition. And so he thought he had gotten away, he starts up the grain truck and starts driving. But soon thereafter, two police cars pile in right behind him with their lights on. And so he floors it and he drives 20 miles to Moses Lake with the officers in hot pursuit the whole time. And one of the officers says that as he approached uh, Moses Lake, it got to be a dirt road and very bumpy. And he was trying to get up to somewhere to get away. And the officer says he left the roadway at full speed. He turned that big old truck into a dune buggy. It was just like Dukes of Hazard, all four tires in the air. The truck finally gave out. It couldn't take the driving like that any longer. And so Daryl jumps out just as they always do when you see the helicopter chases. The guy always jumps out and tries to run and then gets chased down. And he does this and he jumps out and runs and he runs right into the frigid Moses Lake with his jumpsuit still on and his handcuffs still on. But he wasn't a very good swimmer and the water was very, very cold. And so he began to bob up and down, his head going underwater, coming up, gasping for breath. He's trying to swim with handcuffs. And he begins to yell to the officers who are now on the shore, help, help, I'm drowning. They've been chasing him for 20 miles. He's been putting everyone at risk. He's a kidnapper and a robber. And now he's desperate for these same officers to jump in and save him. Help, I'm drowning. The two deputies look at each other and kind of shrug their shoulders and they take off their uniforms and jump in, both of them, swimming out in the frigid waters of Moses Lake and pull him in. The deputy says, when we got back to shore, he looked me right in the face and said, you just saved my life. Thank you. Friends, Jesus disrobes from his heavenly glory and enters into our chaos and our pain and our circumstances to save us, to rescue us. He enters into our mess. He leaves his father's side and says, I will go to find and rescue these escaped criminals, these escaped convicts, the ones who never turn to me when I want them to, the disobedient ones. I will jump in the frigid waters to rescue them in the middle of their chaos. He will enter into your internal storm and bring, and bring peace. Letting him in, friends, is both the simplest 
and it's the hardest thing that you'll ever do. It's hard because it's so simple. There's no confusion or obfuscation to hide behind. It's simple. You say, help, I'm drowning. I'm an offender and my crimes are many, but my main crime is that I've tried to swim on my own. But now I'm tired and I need you, Jesus, Savior, to rescue me. My main sin is that I've tried to be my own king. I thought I could live it on my own. I want to rule my own kingdom. But come and rescue me. I'm drowning. Friends, there's no better time than Advent to say that simple prayer. Help me, Jesus. I'm drowning. Would you enter into my life and bring lasting, eternal peace? The doorway to peace this Advent season, whether you have been a Christian for many years or whether this is the first time you've ever been in a church, the doorway to peace is through Jesus. It's through that simple prayer of saying, Jesus, help me. I'm drowning. Make your Advent significant for me right now. I believe you and trust you. Would you enter into my sorrow, enter into my story and change it? Give me peace. Let's pray for that now. Father, I do pray that you would bring peace where there is disorder, that you would enter into the circumstances of our lives, that you would change them for the better, that you would cause our lives to be different. But Father, in that process, as we continue to live in a world that is broken and fallen and sinful, we will inevitably encounter more difficulty and more problems. And we pray that we would learn to find you and to find your rest in the midst of those circumstances, in the midst of pain, in the midst of joblessness, in the midst of being left by a spouse. I pray that you would come and rescue us again. Whether we've been Christians for many years or whether we are still investigating, that's the prayer that we need to ask. Would you come and rescue us yet again? Father, rescue this church by your gospel. Bring us peace. And all of those who are gathered here as individuals, would you rescue us? Would you grant us peace? Thank you for coming in such a humble way, in a humble place, to show us that you care about even the little things, the most minute details of our lives. We thank you that at the center of the universe, there is loving and lasting peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.